And now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Claudia Puig. Claudia Puig is president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, a critic for NPR's Film Week, and a contributor to NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. She previously served as USA Today's film critic for 18 years and as a Los Angeles Times staff writer for 11 years. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Claudia Puig. I have the great pleasure of this wonderful panel sitting next to me is Mark Anthony Neal, who is a cultural historian at Duke University. He is the chair of the Department of African and African American Studies and the director of Duke's Center for the Arts, Digital Culture and Entrepreneurship, and he's also the host of the weekly video podcast, Left of Black. Mark Anthony Neal. And we have Tanareve Du. She's an Afrofuturist novelist and screenwriter, and she's received an American Book Award, an NAACP Image Award, also teaches courses on Afrofuturism and black horror at UCLA. And next to Tanareve is, uh, Tananareve, I'm sorry, I mispronounced your name, I apologize, <laughs> um, is Nate Moore, who is Vice President of Development and uh, production at Marvel Studios and executive producer of Black Panther. <laughs> His previous work at Marvel includes Guardians of the Galaxy and the Captain America films. He's also a UCLA grad. Um, <laughs> and last but not least is Darnell Hunt, who is a sociologist and dean of social sciences at UCLA. He's also the lead author of UCLA's Hollywood Diversity Reports, which you've probably been hearing about. They came out just before the Oscars. Um, they analyze the employment of women and minorities in front of and behind the camera in film and television. Darnell Hunt. So welcome, Wakanda forever. <laughs> so I wanted to begin by um, asking each of you when you saw this, who you saw it with, and what your initial reactions were. And I'll start with Darnell because you're nodding. Yeah, um, I saw it, um, I guess, the morning after opening night. So it was a Friday morning. I saw it with my partner. And uh, I saw it in a theater, um, and I was very curious to see the reactions of the people around me. And uh, it, was a, it was a mixed crowd. And um, I thought that was very interesting as a sociologist to see how people responded to a story that we don't see all that often about you know, black people with agency you know, taking control and changing the world. You know? And um, what was refreshing for me was that everyone was engaging with it um, in, a, in, a, in a very uh, spirited sort of way. So it wasn't like... The, the story was only for, you know, black people, although clearly it is for black people, uh, but it wasn't only for black people. And, and, and it was, I think, it was reassuring to me, you know, given the topic of this, this, um, this panel tonight, to see people in the audience receiving the, the film the way they did. Excellent. So we're going to just skip over Nate for a second. <laughs> 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 I hear that story. <laughs> and Tananarive has seen it a few times, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe more than anyone in this room. So, um, but the first time, uh, what was your reaction? I was, I was invited out of the blue to the Hollywood premiere by an Entertainment Weekly reporter, Anthony Bresnikan. Thank you, Anthony. <laughs> so... 
I don't know how many of you have been to uh, cast premieres, but they're always exciting. You know, even if the film isn't that great, everyone's just so pumped up to be there. It, it's a very forgiving environment, but Black Panther didn't need that forgiving environment. It was like a Cinderella mm -hmm. moment. There were so many, I was sitting near a railing and there were so many times I felt like I was falling <laughs> over the railing into <laughs> the movie, like the first, uh, entrance into Wakanda and the appearance of the, the rhinos, you know, so there were so many surprises in the film. So it was, it was just magical. And saw Stanley wheeled in and the cast was <laughs> on the stage and it was just a beautiful night and I loved it. I loved the film. That's why I've seen it four times. Mm. Mark. So I saw the film in small town North Carolina, Marsville, North Carolina with my wife's chapter of Zeta Phi Beta. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> The entire chapter was there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the thing that just immediately impressed me was just how beautiful we looked on screen. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the thing, you know, representational politics are important and, and, yeah. and, and yeah. we represented well in that film. I went and saw it last night for the second time, and I think I loved it even more than I did the first time. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Nate, did you know, when was it, when did you figure out, was it from the start when Ryan Coogler came on, but when did you figure out that this was gonna be the phenomenon and the amazing film that it is? Uh, I don't, we never knew. You know, I don't think you can know something like this. It, it's caught on in a way that none of us anticipated, you know. I think when you, uh, we knew we had something special at Comic-Con in, just the cast reaction to that trailer, mm -hmm. uh, if you remember, kind of went viral. Um, because even they, when you're, in the, when you're in a movie environment every day, you're just trying to get the work done. So you sort of lose sight of the bigger picture just because you have mm -hmm. to. Uh, but for them to be able to see their own performances and go, oh, this is really exciting, got us excited for the first time because we're just sort of in the weeds of, hey, does this story make sense? Or is that the best line reader? Is that the best line read? So um, I think for, for Ryan and I and, and the post-production team especially, we were just trying to finish the movie, honestly, and then you hear prognostications of how it's going to do, and you hear the, all the that great groundswell on Twitter, and you hope, but you never assume, you know. Um, and so even that opening weekend, we did not think it was going to do what it did, um, and it was great. It, 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 it to to everyone's point, I think the the best part was how it sort of crossed over, and it was sort of a movie for everybody, which was always our intention. But that notion that everybody sort of embraced the film even if they were finding different things in it for themselves, I think was, was what made us the happiest. Mm. I love the fact that you know it's important as a film with a black director, with a largely black cast, with a substantial amount of uh, crew members who are black as well, but it tackles important issues and it takes the comic book genre to a, a deeper level. And that's, I mean, that may be changing how we will look at superhero comic book movies. Um, and I, Tana Reeve, I want to ask you a little bit about that because I know that you teach at Futurism and I wondered you know, how you see it in light of all of that. Well, sure. Um, Afrofuturism, for those of you who don't know, well, if you've seen Black Panther now, you do know, <laughs> uh, or, or at least one aspect of it in film, is that it's not just black futurity, but also uh, embracing tradition, because you can't go forward until you know the past. And, mm -hmm. and there's been so much erasure mm -hmm. of our yeah. past in this country and in Africa. So 
So that's all important. And up until Black Panther, and I'll be teaching this course uh, in, the, in the spring, <laughs> it's full. Uh, <laughs> but until Black Panther, I could show, you know, George Clinton's mothership coming down because it's also music. It's also mm -hmm. literature. It's Octavia Butler. You know, it's mm -hmm. Nalo Hopkins and Annette Okorafor. Um, but in terms of film, you have The Brother from Another Planet. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you, have, you have a <laughs> short film called Poomzi by Wanuri Kahiu, who's a kid. But that's a short film. So you can find Afrofuturism in the culture. But before Black Panther, it was a bit more of a hunt if you really wanted to pinpoint it. And now you have something that has opened up Afrofuturism mm. so that people who had never heard the term before are very excited by it and want more. I read an essay in which someone called this the cinematic equivalent to the election of Barack Obama. Mm. They have compared it to Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. They've compared it to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, to Rosa Parks. Wow. I, so how do you feel when you hear stuff like that, <laughs> Nate? Uh, no, 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 none of those things. Uh, <laughs> more important. Uh, no, look. Uh, I mean, that's so flattering, but the, it's a film, uh, and so <laughs> it's bound by the conventions of it Let's being not get a carried film. away. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think Ryan and I would talk a lot about what this film could potentially do. Uh, again, not assuming anything, but just knowing what the marketplace was. Because for us, as filmmakers, you want to move the needle culturally, but you're also just thinking of, of the business of the business. And, and we knew that the movie had to succeed to allow other movies like this to exist. Um, and so that, I think, we can... Uh, uh, take a little comfort in that the movie did succeed and so hopefully more movies like that do ex exist. It's not on par <laughs> to the election of the first black president <laughs> by any means. Uh, but can it move the needle in that way? Yeah, I think so. Do you think it's speaking to us because we don't have that black president anymore and we have a more racist president, so... <laughs> Boy, well, <laughs> it definitely got political. really topical real quick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I went too uh, far. That was too fast. <laughs> but I also just think it's, it's images, uh, like again, like everybody's been saying, it's images that we don't get to see a lot. So it feels special because it is special uh, because it, it hadn't existed before. Um, and, I, and I think that is the takeaway, again, as storytellers, is, oh, let's tell these stories of, of people who aren't represented because... A, they're good stories. Uh, B, they are special just by the nature that they haven't existed before. Uh, and I think that's I, what people, that's what made it cross over from Darnell to the, your experience to everyone's yeah. experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a friend whose son went to see the movie before her, and this is a white family, and her son's eight years old. And he was telling her about his favorite character, and she realized about five minutes in, oh, he was talking about the female general of the Dora Milaje. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, so that's cool, right? Like, that kind of crossover, <laughs> I think, is really interesting, but that's, that's the potential that I think is, we don't think about it. Again, I'll speak as filmmakers. You, sometimes you assume, oh, people are only going to respond things to things that are like them. But that is absolutely not the truth. Yeah. People are going to respond to things that are cool. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and hopefully we've made something cool enough that people are responding to it again, and everybody has something in the film that's for them. I think you can, that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's broken all kinds of records. It is the number one superhero comic book movie all time. of all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is the most tweeted about film of all time. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I speak to that? As yes, a, I want you to speak to as that. As a super fan, uh, <laughs> here. Um, I didn't create the Black Panther Solid hashtag, but when it and the, yeah. the creator is in the audience, I think. But it, 
it was two years before the film opened mm. that yeah. we were tweeting how we were going to dress, what crew we were going to roll in with, uh, the yeah. foods we would bring in to the cons- yeah, you sneak in. And, the cons- <laughs> 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 and, and we didn't do everything. I mean, it was an exaggeration, but actually all those things came to pass. We did dress yeah. up. Yes. We did roll in with our crews. Yes. Mm-hmm. We probably did sneak in some food. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so for a lot of us on the outside, we're not surprised. Maybe the exact numbers, maybe the top superhero film we weren't expecting so quickly. But we knew, clap if you knew. Um, So I want to get into the topic at hand here, which is what this will, this movie will mean. And I wanted to kind of look at it in uh, perspective with with Get Out, which had great success last year, Um, tackling racism head on. uh, Mm -hmm. And this film does it in in very deep ways as well. Um, And I was thinking about Ryan Coogler being in his 30s, Jordan Peele being in his 30s, both are massively talented. Um, did we, so, so, you know, in terms of the Hollywood Diversity Report, the needle may actually look, be moved and look a little different mm-hmm. next year. Or what do you think, Darnell? Well, when we look at the, uh, the data from this particular year, I mean, things are going to shift because of this film. I mean, the, the gravity of this film, I mean, it's like pulling everything in, into its orbit in terms of, you know, the bottom line. One of the things we look at in the Hollywood Diversity Report is the relationship between the bottom line and diversity in front of the camera and behind the camera. And so here you have a film that's radically diverse in terms of its cast and crew um, that also happens to be the, the top grossing film. So that's going to definitely uh, you know, you know, affect our equations. You know, and, and, I, and I think that that's important. Um, in terms of the, the question at hand, I mean, you know, I'm a cautious optimist. I mean, I feel that this movie had to be made, and I think that things will forever be different in terms of the way we talk about what's possible. In the same way that, you know, after Barack Obama, I mean, not to, to go back to that example, <laughs> I mean, you know, things that, you know, when I was growing up, you know, people would say, oh, you'd be the president. Well, yeah, right, yeah, sure. You know, but it's happened, right? Mm-hmm. So that one obstacle has been removed. I mean, I think that we can now say you can have a film with a great story, with an outstanding director, with a great cast, that can make as much money globally as it made in the U.S. with a largely black cast, something mm-hmm. that you know, before the industry said you couldn't do. Right. You know? And when you point to examples like, for example, the Fast and Furious franchise, mm-hmm. where most of the leads were people of color, the directors were people of color, that's made you know, over $5 billion globally, um, well, that's just because it's an action film, mm-hmm. or it's that genre. It's, it's, mm-hmm. There's nothing about, you know, I mean, that wouldn't work in other genres. Well, here you have a superhero film that's doing amazingly well. And so I, I think the takeaway is, um, you know, the audience wants to see fresh ideas. They want to see themselves included. They want to have um, figures that they can relate to. And I think that every time we make a Black Panther, we start chipping away at the myths that get in the way of, you know, us routinely making these types of films. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm both suspicious and ambivalent about Black cultural productions that outperform expectations. And that's as much about Black Panther as it is Michael Jackson's Thriller. Um, Because it suggests to me that it's reaching audiences that takes it away from what we might have thought about as his core audience Mm -hmm. and what we might think of as a core message. Um, That being said, right, thinking about the politics of representation, right, we know there's value in that exchange there. Um, What I'm concerned about is that, you know, do we get five more Black Panthers or do we get a hundred more Moonlights? 
Right. Um, right and and right. so you use the example mm -hmm. of Barack Obama. I'll use the example of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. So everyone's had the chance to go there in this amazing creation, right? This measurement sure. statement of who we are in this country. But is that going to trickle down to the museums that are in the city of Detroit or Baltimore yeah, or in Oakland yeah, and places yeah. like that? Is the success of Black Panther going to allow us to make to green light more movies that are about everyday black life right. that we know also can be successful? Because we've seen examples of that even in the last couple of years. Let me, let me uh, piggyback on that comment. I think you make a really good point. It really goes to the structure of the industry. And this is what we talk about in our report series. Until we have the type of fundamental change in the executive suites that we're seeing in front of the camera with films like this, this will not become routine. There mm -hmm. will be, these will be exceptional films that get made that mm -hmm. do really well. And, and I, I agree. I think we want to see the day where we have that trickle down, where we're making, you know, we're making Moonlights, we're making Black Panthers, we're making um, um, Hidden Figures, we're making all these films that, that um, portray different aspects of black life and the diversity within black life. You know, big films, tentpole films, and right. smaller films. You right. know, mm -hmm. um, art films and you know, action films. A combination of all of that. And until we have people greenlighting or making greenlighting decisions who look like mm -hmm. us, mm -hmm. I mean, that's not going to happen in, in a regular way. So what I'm saying is that when you when you have these successes, you open the door ever more, you know, widely to the possibility of people coming into those executive suites and, and moving up the ladder. And um, you know, getting to the point where we eventually have that as a routine part of Hollywood. Yeah, We're not there yet. Right. Just to uh, to give people uh, a picture of what it's like in the pitching room, because I've been uh, pitching for years. My husband and I, Stephen Barnes, collaborate on on screenplays as well. And you will get that executive who will say to your face, or you at least used to, let's say six, seven <laughs> years ago, do the characters have to be black? Wow. Right. Okay. Right. And if they're not saying it, they're thinking it. Right? It's, it's the rare executive who would say that out loud. And I'm sure some version of that conversation happens somewhere even today. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. probably not too far from where we're sitting. So it will take time before, I mean a long time before that's not even a consideration. But I have seen changes, I mean anecdotally, uh, where someone will reference a get out when you're in there pitching because now you've seen an example of a black right. horror film that can be successful at a, at a price, $4.5 million. Mm -hmm. Jordan Peele shot that for. Um, and it made something like 200. And it made $250 million. So every time I've been handed a check in Hollywood, there was someone black in the pipeline, either a producer who held our hands and got us in the room or the executive is black in the room. I remember Ryan Coogler talking about what a relief it was to see you at the right. table. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel that's real. And very often it's the lowest ranking person at the table, by the way. Um, that is starting to change, but it will have to change a lot more. Oh, yeah. Well, well I want to hear what Nate has to say about that because you're in... I think the other... Did you face all that? Yeah, the, uh, the other thing that I think will change ultimately is uh, casting, right? So part of, I think, the value of Black Panther is not only an, an example of that movie traveling, but now hopefully those actors and actresses being famous around the world. Mm. So, you know, I used to work at a foreign sales driven company and a lot of the way independent films are put together are by foreign sales, by sort of pre-selling in the UK, for instance, and getting X amount for, the, for this actor. All of a sudden, these actors and actresses have value. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually will change the equation because a lot of times financiers will just go, well, who's worth money? Is it Daniel Kaluuya? Sure, I'll make it with Daniel Kaluuya. That's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Is it Chadwick? I'll make it with Chadwick. Mm -hmm. right. uh, that may not have been the case a year ago. Right. So um, I think that that's the other sort of leg of the table of the conversation is some things that weren't being made before were because there was a lack of 
stars, right? If it's not Will Smith, who do I go to? I don't know. Well, now you can go to Michael B. Jordan, you can go to Chadwick Boseman, you can go to Daniel Kaluuya, you can go to Winston Duke. Here are people who now have a presence in China, have a presence in South America, whereas maybe they weren't uh, a presence before. So that, I think, will change the calculus of how movies are put together, because ultimately, Hollywood uh, just wants to make money. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I mean? And I think if you can prove that there is money to be made, right. they will make that film. They yeah. didn't get it with Fast and Furious. They didn't get it so much <laughs> with Straight Outta Compton. They didn't get it with other movies. But they'd have to be complete dimwits to not get it now, right? right. <laughs> Again, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. But I do yeah. think there will be a shift where now all of a sudden maybe Angela Bassett is a star again, even though she mm. always should have been. Right. But that notion that these mm. people are now super visible will be helpful, for sure. What has the reaction been that you've heard in the studio world uh, about this? I mean, it's, it's all, studios are inherently reactionary because everything is risk averse, right? So it's, it's sort of like, we wish we would have had that. But would they have made that? I don't, I don't know, you know? Um, and I don't think people are now fast-tracking the thing they have closest to Black Panther. I do think you see some things like, uh, for instance, Sony uh, with Nightwatch which may not have existed pre-Black Panther, but now they go, okay, well, that's a bet we're willing to make because, man, if they spent X and made Y, if we spend X, even if it's less, maybe we right. can make Y. Mm. Um, it is all economics for studios, right? right? They go, oh, maybe we should be considering that thing that we passed on before because, oh, there is a market for that. Well, that's cool. Um, again, it's a drop in the bucket in the same way that Coco was a drop in the bucket where all of a sudden now you go, oh, wait a second, movies about Mexican heritage can play in China? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can, because that movie's good. Mm -hmm. It's interesting um, that Disney is connected to both of them. Um, yeah. I think part of that is, is the brand leads the way. The brand opens the doors, right? So Black Panther uh, is a Marvel film. That helps. Yeah. Uh, we released a movie about a raccoon in a tree. It did pretty well, right? <laughs> like yeah. that, that become, The barrier to entry is less. I think if you're mm -hmm. a universal, the, the fear is, well, I don't have that pre-sold anything. So how do I release that? Pixar, pre-sold, yeah. right? Marvel, pre-sold to a yeah. degree. Yeah. Uh, uh, a, a piece of unique content that is a Paramount movie, that is a riskier bet for the people who make the financial decisions in that company. Unless they're made yeah. for yeah. two million or four million. That's right, and then, and then you get into the economics of the size and scope yeah. of your film, and then it becomes really small, and then you hope it is Moonlight, because that also can be really profitable, or Get Out. Mm -hmm. um, but it really, it's just that scale. It's that scale that is, that is the numbers game between cast and filmmaker and sales and all that stuff that hopefully, again, we can change that calculus a bit. It's not, it's the beginning of a larger movement, I think. It does seem like that. Do you think, Chanana uh, Reeve, do you think we're at a, a tipping point? Are we, are we starting a movement? I hope so. You know, maybe I'm naive. I, I get, and Ava DuVernay had spoken about how you have to, you know, be careful sometimes and, and realize that sometimes people see these films as an anomaly, right? right. For all mm -hmm. those reasons, like, oh, well, that was a Marvel film. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, that, or, well, there's always an excuse, there's a reason. We've had black successes yeah. in the past, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and you don't get that immediate replication. Uh, UCLA last night, we were just talking about Coming to America. I mean, that mm -hmm. was a John Landis film, but it had a 97% black cast. It did very well. There weren't mm -hmm. a bunch of imitators mm -hmm. after yeah. it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. I hope we're at the point where we can't go backwards, where just for all the reasons you've just discussed, Nate, just the money alone, yeah. it would be stupid not to give 
greater consideration to these projects. But unfortunately, the way Hollywood works is based on old relationships, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I've had producers tell me we liked your pitch better, but we've worked with this guy before, mm. you know, and that kind of thing. So yeah. Yeah. I agree, the casting thing is huge. I remember when if it wasn't Hallie, you couldn't cast a female lead, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, 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 and yeah. I don't think we're going back to that yeah. anytime soon. But I think it also would be naive to believe that it'll be a straight line. To go back to the Barack Obama analogy, okay? Now, I'm not, saying, <laughs> I'm not saying we're going to go into an era that is the polar opposite of what we're having now, but it doesn't always indicate what we think it indicates in the moment. Mm. Mm. Well, you, bring up, you brought up Ava DuVernay, and so we have to kind of look at that uh, wrinkle in time as well, because we're talking about very successful films. Yeah. That one has not been as successful. But I would like to think that we have come to or are coming to a time when you can also have a non-successful film and it's not going to hurt every other, yeah. you know, black right. female director. Right. Um, right. 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 So uh, You know, it's a different kind of film. Um, for everybody who said they read the book as a kid, no one, as we were talking about earlier, no one remembers <laughs> what the book was actually about. Even when they read it as a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, we just know we liked it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the storyline, it, it doesn't work the same way as the social, uh, social media phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but yet, when you think about things like casting, you know, that's a film that was able to push the envelope in terms of casting and thinking about a multiracial cast and mm -hmm. thinking about a black girl as being the centerpiece sure. of the narrative that whether or not the film is as successful as we would like it to be, I think it pushes the needle in certain kinds of ways. Um, I think audience becomes part of this conversation Absolutely. also. Um, the overwhelming support that you saw, like for instance in Black Twitter around the Black Panther, mm. didn't nearly see that kind of support for say a film like Mudbound. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, which also mm -hmm. got its nods in terms of Oscars and Mary J. Blige's performances. Why do you think that film didn't get support? I think there are a bunch of things. I think one, because it's a period piece that deals with a period of time that black folks don't want to deal with, and I think we're going to be real honest, is because the director is a black queer woman. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's on the table in terms mm -hmm. of black audiences and their responses to mm -hmm. it, that there's still some ambivalence mm -hmm. uh, in, those, in regards to that in terms of, of a black mm -hmm. queer woman as a director. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that, um, you know, the whole question of can we go back? I mean, I, I don't think there's any going back. I mean, I think that we may have momentarily, momentary lulls as we're moving forward slowly because demographically things have shifted to the point where it's just not possible to have your grandfather's you know, Hollywood. I mean, that's right. just not possible yeah. now. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing we're finding in our, in our reports is for the last several years, if you look at the top 10 films ranked by Global Box Office, yeah. people of color bought the majority of the tickets for mm -hmm. five of those films. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, right. and that number's increasing because that share of the population is growing by half a percent every year. So, you know, and, and that's, that's very real. And people of color over-index, you know, yes. Latinos in particular buy more movie tickets than any other group per right. capita. Right. So, you know, if it's about the bottom line, it's about green, about making money, you've got to serve those yeah. audiences. And our TV data shows that clearly audiences want to see themselves included in the narrative right. in a major way, not right. as sort of the friend of the, of the white lead. That's <laughs> right, not what they right, want to right, see, right. All right? Now, they may go see a film that's like that, but that's not what they crave or desire. Right. And, and when given the opportunity, they come out in droves yes. to support these types of films, which is right. why people are seeing Black Panther over and over and over right. again. Right. I have to ask then, for each of you, when, when was the first time that you saw yourself on either a big screen, TV, or movie? Wow. Ooh. I, I, got, I got a quick answer to that. What is it? Uh, Cornbread Earl and Me. Mm. <laughs> okay. uh, the, a young Lawrence Fishburne, 1975. Yeah. My mother dragged me to that film in part because 
It was about this young black male who was the primary character, and it dealt with issues of police brutality. Mm, wow. wow. I'm going to date myself here. Um, <laughs> but I remember the little boy, because I didn't have a little girl, but the little boy, the little black boy on Julia. Oh, oh, I remember right, that, too. Right, yeah. right, that was, right. I really feel like that was the first time I felt like I was mm -hmm. seeing a version of myself on television. And that was a groundbreaking TV show. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Ahead of its yeah. time, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, television would probably be good times for me. Mm. Uh, film, maybe Lando Calrissian. Wow. Mm. Uh, wow. You know? Yeah. 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 Well, I'm trying to put it together. Um, you know, maybe the electric company, you know, those oh, chairs right. programs. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's what, uh, that's what I remember. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan <Yeah>. Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah. Sounder. I was thinking about Sounder, too. I love that movie. Yeah. No, not for me, it was maybe America Ferrera, but that was way too past uh. my time. But um, <laughs> I, was, I was already old by the time that happened. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, went, I was watching um, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah last night, and um, Tyler Perry was on. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about his kind of fiefdom down in, in Atlanta. Um, and Black Panther was partly shot there. It was. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was that, was that by design? No, that was <laughs> by necessity. Uh, <laughs> but Tyler's studio is, is beautiful. It's really nice. Because he mentioned, I thought it was really interesting, he stressed the need to own your own studio. And he said, this is something... Um, that we need to learn as people of color, that ownership is the key to generational changes. Because mm -hmm. yeah, you can make bad television and bad f film all the time. You know, That's I right. don't But to give him credit, but to give him credit, he's mastered the business model. He's yeah. been able to make the films that he's made because they turn amazing <laughs> profits. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. literally yeah. helped bring yeah. us to yeah. Black Panther right. <laughs> in that way, and also the studio. Yeah. But that seems like equality, right? White people make bad movies all the time. Yeah. So right. <laughs> e equality is when you know black folks can make films as mediocre as white folks. Yeah, yeah. and it doesn't ruin. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so, um, Darnell, I was thinking about uh, you know from your research. The model, we were talking about the models being very different in film yeah. versus in television. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like maybe television, because of the plethora, that yeah. there's maybe some more strides. Um, yeah. Well, I think what we're seeing in television right now, and it remains to be seen how long it can be sustained, you know, in terms of, I mean, you know, if you think about what the typical audience size is today compared to what it was 10 or 15 mm -hmm. years ago, it's a shadow of that. Right. And so what mm -hmm. we see is many, many more TV shows, and the seasons are a lot shorter. So it used to be like 26 episodes or whatever. Now you might get 10, maybe you get 11, depending on where it is. So we have this um, explosion of new content on television. And it, in fact, it's so much content that they can't keep going back to the same white guys over and over again. Right. So it actually creates opportunity for people to kind of get in the, and to do a show, a, a white famous on Showtime that probably mm -hmm. never would have made, you know, made it before, you know. And, and, and then we discover that, you know, hey, there's some great stuff here, you know. So in a way, we're kind of in this renaissance because we have the space to experiment and do things in TV that we don't have in film because we're actually making fewer films now than we were making before the Great Recession. So it's really one of those situations of the structure of the TV industry at this particular moment in time compared to film. And, and again, with changing technology, TV probably won't look the same five years from now that it does now with you know, streaming video on demand. Who knows what exactly this is going to look like? But um, the one thing that uh, we can say for sure is that, you know, that's where most of the work is right now in the industry. And I think it's open doors for people to have access that, 
probably wouldn't have had it before and, mm. and really aren't enjoying it in film right now. I was thinking about, um, you were talking about Wrinkle in Time and how inclusive that casting was. And I was thinking about this weekend with the marches and how kind of that seemed to be inclusive in kind of a more organic way than, than making a real effort, mm. you know, in terms of diversity. Um, and so I was just, uh, I guess where I'm going with this is um, when you have like things like inclusion writers, which we maybe we can talk about a little mm -hmm. bit here, when you have actual efforts to, are those, is that a good thing? Should it happen organically? Do we, you know, we're at a point where we need to mandate it. Can we mandate it? How, how do you see all of that? You're talking to me? I feel I feel like uh, you know there there isn't a, a, a magic bullet like you know yeah. if we do this one thing we're gonna solve yeah. this problem this is a long-standing deep structural problem and it, it, it demands solutions on every front so inclusion writers I mean yeah if we can if we can get something like that into a contract I think that would be great now again it's not gonna solve the problem on its own uh, the Rooney rule I mean mm -hmm. you know there are all these yeah. different ways you might go to try to you know, shake up business as usual, you know, and, and the comfort zone of people who keep hiring their uh, friends and people they've worked with in the past. Um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of different things that need to be tried. We need to, you know, you know deal with the executive suite problem, which is, I think, a very real problem. Mm -hmm. um, there are pipeline issues. Um, there are all kinds of problems that need to be dealt with simultaneously. So much of it is outreach, you know? Yeah. Um, the whole thing with Saturday Night Live, not having uh, black cast members, uh, or enough black cast members, and the color of change came and, and really worked with them, and right. they did right. a talent search, and lo and behold, there are funny black people. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, 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 and so I think there's, there's almost this assumption that, that it's, I mean, it's hard to be a screenwriter, okay? Uh, but it's not magic to be a screenwriter. Right. So people right. who get opportunities can learn those skills. Mm -hmm. It's not magic to run yeah. a writer's room. Um, and, and searching, there has to be a way to encourage people to search and, and find people who have been held at bay by mm -hmm. gatekeepers who, who wouldn't mm -hmm. even know where to look for you. But, and I think part of it too is, especially behind the camera, a lot of the jobs, like the job jobs, the grips, the electrics, mm -hmm. the, um, uh, a lot of them are legacy jobs, so my dad did it so I can do it. So, mm -hmm. so the notion that there wasn't a, a, a workforce of color before, so there isn't one now, I think is, is something you have to fight, and it's a training thing, right? Be being a grip is, is weirdly both, you need a lot of skills, but it's also something you can learn. Mm -hmm. But sure. I think people need to know that that's a job. Right. Mm -hmm. right. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, our, our speak of the inclusion writers, our crew was very inclusive because we just happened to hire the best people and they just happened to come from all over the place. What was that? Do, that do was you have great. a percentage or anything like that? We or? never even sort of had sort of drilled down that deep, but mm -hmm. uh, we had, I would, I would almost venture to guess that half of our department heads were, were female and a lot of them were people of color. Uh, our production designer, mm -hmm. our costume designer, mm -hmm. um, our post-production supervisor. Um, Cinematographer. Uh, cinematographer's yep. woman was yep. was yep. A, a queer woman. Our our first AD was a queer woman. Our second AD was a woman. Our, uh, our one of our editors was a woman. Our casting director was a woman. Your cinematographer was the first Oscar nominated. Rachel Morrison, Rachel very Morrison, talented, yeah. um, because she was talented. Yeah. Right. Um, because Ryan had worked with her and said she's really talented. We met with her and go, yeah, she is really talented. Um, again, working in a system that that allowed us to take chances on people who hadn't done th this size of movie before, which mm. included, by the way, Ryan Coogler. Yeah. I was going to ask uh, you about that, yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot of it is just letting people know that these are jobs that exist, that, that you can be a construction foreman for a oh, film. Wow. Oh, okay, well, that's cool. 
Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those people are second generation construction foremen, are second generation, uh, as part of that is breaking in. Prop masters, these are jobs that exist. Uh, I think inclusion riders are one step, but there also needs to be a training program. Yep. So people yeah. are qualified and will succeed when you put them in that place. Because mm -hmm. my biggest fear is putting people not qualified in that yes. place. They fail, and then there's you an example excuse of- excuse for never doing it again. That's right. Mm -hmm. right. That's, that's mm -hmm. my biggest fear. How did Ryan Coogler get involved with doing this? Uh, we were looking for a filmmaker and uh, 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 had spoken with Ava DuVernay mm -hmm. and sort of creatively weren't on the same page. And so I had seen the trailer for Creed and remembered, I was like, oh, that's the guy who did Fruitvale. Uh, and I reached out to him and, and, and caught him as he was doing some additional photography in Atlanta. And I happened to be in Atlanta as well for some Civil War shooting. And we met in LA and sort of hit it off. And he came in and, and, and I think initially was a bit gun shy for working at Marvel because he had done two films of which he had a ton of creative right. control. Right. Um, and then got in a room and realized it was just people in a room. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think the notion mm -hmm. of a big company versus actually seeing the faces of who make up that company. Right. Those are two different things. And how did you get involved? In Black Panther? Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of the first projects I started talking about when I got hired at Marvel a little <laughs> over eight years ago. Um, it was a character that I knew of because I was a comic book nerd. So. Um, <laughs> I just always found him interesting, you know. Yeah, 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 uh, um, and it was it took a it took a while, partially because uh, Marvel initially was only making a movie a year and then two movies a year, and at some point you're making sequels to movies that work because of course you have to financially right. that makes sense. Right. And honestly, it was a bit of we couldn't crack a great Black Panther script until after Civil War mm -hmm. because a lot of those first passes were origin stories which tend to be very familiar and. Right. I think audiences get a bit ahead of you, so they're not that interesting. Mm. And it wasn't until we were able to introduce him into the, in the context of a larger thing that we were able to jump past the origin in the same way we did with Spider-Man Homecoming, by the way. Right. Just get the, nobody cares, really. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they like the character. Right. Um, and after seeing him in Civil War and understanding enough about Wakanda, we could just do a movie about Wakanda. Well, that's, mm -hmm. that's way better than, how did he get his powers? Right. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. So it all snowballed from that, and casting Chad, who's fantastic, and Chad killing it in that film, right? And, oh, he's so great. Um, it, it, and it was an easy decision, because the character's great, you know? Mm -hmm. And we were standing on the shoulders of 50 years of publishing of really good quality, no matter if it was the Kirby stuff, or the Don McGregor stuff, or the Christopher Priest stuff, or the Reginald Hudlin stuff, or or the Tanasi Coates stuff, or even the Jonathan Hickman stuff in Avengers books. Like, there's so much great Panther right. stuff to pull from. Right. We knew we could make a great movie that would also offer not a storytelling opportunity for a ton of other films. Mm -hmm. What's been the most surprising reaction that you've had from a person who's come up to you who's seen it? Oh, uh, oof. Or maybe most, what's affected you most? I mean, there was a hashtag, speaking of hashtags, I think what Wakanda means to me that happened right after the film mm -hmm. came out where again, speaking of representation, you don't realize the depth of what yeah. these images can mean. Mm -hmm. And I, especially being super close to it, you just forget it. You forget. Yeah. Oh, these are, people are gonna experience this for the first time and have mm -hmm. a very specific reaction in the same way that I, for the first time, when I saw E.T., which was the first movie I ever saw in theaters, mm. stayed with me mm. my, the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, Seeing images, and images that are reflective of you or even reflective of something that you didn't know existed that you aspire to or want to learn more about is really powerful. Yeah. Um, and so much, uh, so often we forget about, in talking about movies and TV, the power of images. Just the yeah. power of images, yeah. regardless of context, um, uh, I think that was the most surprising thing. And especially for kids. I always think about kids mm -hmm. going like, oh, mm -hmm. this is something 
for the first time, there's the costume that has my face on it. That's great. Yeah. Um, I didn't have that as a kid, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe Winston from the Ghostbusters maybe was as close as I was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but now, and now there's a choice. And now it's not just one. Now it can be Panther, or Nakir, or Koya, or Shuri, or M'Baku, or Killmonger if you want, or even Falcon, or Nick Fury. Like, there's mm -hmm. just a choice now. That's great. Yeah. And, and it's, but I will say this, uh, and I know this is not really about this, but it is can't stop with African and African-American characters. Mm -hmm. Like, because man, are there other audiences that are way underserved, yes. comparatively. Yes. Um, and that, I think, hopefully is the other thing Panther will do. We'll go, it's not just like about African and African-American characters. It could be about Latin American characters, it could be about Asian characters, mm -hmm. Indian characters. Like, mm -hmm. we need to tell more diverse stories. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yes. Overall. Absolutely. There were so many timely issues that were brought up, and, and one of the ones that stood out to for me was sort of like the idea of refugees. Do we let these people come in? Do we close off the borders? They're bringing their problems yep. with them. It went, it took such a much deeper dive mm -hmm. than, than comic book movies do. Yeah, again, I would, I would say though, uh, stuff we pulled from publishing. Like the comics actually are pretty sophisticated if you really dive into them. Uh, and it just made sense if you think about this nation in a real way. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the interesting contradictions about the film, right? I mean, one of the reasons why the film is so very successful is because it's such an American film. So when you hear reports about like folks in the alt-right liking Black Panther, <laughs> in part because of the way folks in Wakanda sometimes talk about immigration, because mm -hmm. of the idea of an isolationist politics, mm -hmm. that actually resonated with people that we wouldn't think would ever care about <laughs> it at all, like Black Panther. Yeah. And, and that's a very real conversation to have, but, yeah. but it, it allows us to have a kind of debate about it yeah. that we weren't necessarily having before in a totally different context. Yeah. yeah. The issues of colonialism, and mm -hmm. then then everything you see in Oakland, mm -hmm. and that um, was that was one of the. There were many surprises, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. first time um, seeing Black Panther, the the political bite to it. Uh, Don't scare me like that, colonizer. Um, I love it, that. Right. That was one of my favorite lines. Yeah. Right. Right. It is in the comics. You know, the Dora, you don't touch T'Challa, but to see it on screen <laughs> when Okoye yeah. was about, you know, to rip that guy's uh, Martin Freeman's uh, head off because he touched T'Challa, that was all very To see a uh, claw right. dragged yeah. across the plains like he was an alien from Independence Day. Uh, <laughs> I was like, wow, they're really going there. Okay. <laughs> so, so that was uh, that was some of the fun stuff. And the strong female character. Yes, mm. absolutely. Yeah. I just, again, yes. wow. Um, and I don't know if this is, well, I guess it is Ryan Coogler uh, and his influence, uh, but I was really surprised at the generosity of screen time with the, the women uh, mm -hmm. and the Dora Milaje. That was, mm -hmm. uh, Denai Guerrera, and when she flew over in her red dress flying behind her, I was like, oh my. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had watched the trailer a million times, but they cut it off before she jumped. Yep. So that jump was a surprise. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yes, and she was as much a superhero, right? Right. There, in that moment. Right. Yeah. When, when she rips off the wig. Some rocks that, that shaved head. <laughs> um, so I think we're going to be opening it up to the audience. I uh, wasn't ready to be first. Uh, my name is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two, two things. I'm a comic book fan, and you can look at me and tell that I grew up part, partially in Sweden. And <laughs> what I used to hold on to was the Black Panther comic book 
and how it addressed assumptions we make about race and about people we see. And that's something that changed me when mm -hmm. I was in Sweden. Uh, secondly, I'd like for you to talk about getting the money that it took to make this movie. It was not a cheap movie, and it was very risky to put that much money, and you actually increase the budget. If you could talk about that, please. <laughs> Look, the money thing, here's the good news. We're owned by Disney. So uh, we asked them for some money, and they gave it to us. Uh, no, and, it, and it, it, uh, the, the honest truth is it did. The, the initial budget was not, uh, was not enough to finish the film, and so we had to go back and ask for more, and they said yes. Uh, uh, and at no point, and I, and I say this freely because it's true, at no point did Disney ever ask us to take anything out of the movie for any other reason than, hey, it could be cooler if it wasn't there. Um, and they always supported the film 100%. And again, that's a luxury we have, right? To, to have a, a conglomerate like Disney not only fund your film, but also market your film with the great Disney marketing that we had. So that helped get the movie out there in a big way. Um, the, movie's not, <laughs> the movie's not cheap. Uh, and the sequel will not be cheap, but, um, uh, but it also wasn't a fight. We didn't have to raise money, so that, that was a benefit for us. Yeah. Hi, my name's Giovanna Zavito, and um, first of all, I just want to say my friends and I were able to take over 300 children to see at Panther, and it was, I know something changed for them that day, so thank you. It means the world to me that this was made, and it took you eight years to like get it made, but with that being said, is there a follow-up? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, of course. Um, we even in as you're making these films, you always start to have ideas for other other versions, other, other sequels, and you hope that uh, it'll be successful. Obviously, this was so. Of course, of course. Uh, when not sure, but but already talking with Ryan about ideas. So. Tanana Reeves, <laughs> <laughs> come on. <laughs> well, I no. think of uh, Infinity War as Black Panther Two myself. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Eric Green, and um, I've got a question for Tanana Reeve. I'm wondering what you think the impact of this film is going to be on the storytelling community. What kind of conversations mm. are you having with colleagues, and are you all feeling like the barriers are down and you can paint with a broader palette and tell stories that before you might have dreamed of but didn't think you'd find an audience? And for Darnell, I'm curious if, if Nate and Tanana Reeve are collaborating and putting all kinds of new stories on the screen that people haven't seen, what difference is that going to make for people growing up, seeing these things? How does that impact people's sense of themselves and their own possibilities in the world? To my part, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> uh, when, when I started writing, I had not uh, discovered Octavia Butler yet. I did not, I had never read a horror novel with black characters. So it was a great leap of faith, and it took me a long time to get to that point. I was writing white characters, you know? I was writing things that were out, uh, outside of my own experience, so I know for instance, so many writers who are my friends have deals. You know, Nettie Okorfor has Who Fears Death set up at HBO with George R. R. Martin, and Victor Laval is uh, doing the, the Ballad of Black Tom. Um, it, there are a lot of other writers being swept up in this time. I think Black Panther is both creating change and is also a beneficiary of change. Yep. And we all feel that. So that is a constant com conversation. And yes, I want my books up there, but I also take so much joy from watching my friends get their stuff out there that it, it I'm not gonna say it doesn't matter if it's me or not, but, but it's, it's very fulfilling. And I know it's very inspirational to writers who are starting out in her 25 and can sleep on someone's couch and start fresh in Hollywood. 
You know, there's a great book uh, called The Storytelling Animal that really talks about the centrality of story and storytelling to the human condition. I mean, going back to the period when not long after we first acquired language and, and the fact that as humans, it's one of the things that makes us human, you know, to be able to share these stories and to communicate the way we do. So if you think about, you know, what Hollywood movies do, they kind of create an opening for people to kind of see reflections of themselves or their mm -hmm. culture. Um, they kind of gives them a sense of who they are, who they aren't, who they might hope to be. And all these things are kind of happening in relation to each other when we, when we engage with, um, with media. It's not accidental if you go back to Brown versus Board of Education with the, the, the doll test and, yeah. you know, the, and, and the role of sort of not seeing yourself present, you know, in a particular place and what you might choose to be, the way it affects your psyche, particularly for children, you know. So um, you cannot underestimate the uh, power of entertainment. I mean, it is entertaining, but at the same time, it's much, much more. It deals with representation, it deals with the way we construct our identities, the way we um, sort of, you know, erect boundaries, you know, like, I'm not this group or I'm this group. You know, we can, you know, you know, you know to the extent that certain groups are excluded, we can, we can um, sort of reinforce certain types of stereotypes and, uh, you know, affect racial politics. I mean, all of this stuff, you know, is, is, is deeply implicated when we talk about Hollywood movies. So to see stories that haven't been told before and told in such a grand way, you know, um, creates possibilities that just didn't exist before. Um, there was a serious debate that um, went on a few years before Obama was elected, you know, saying, could the electorate imagine a black president? Well, they pointed to all these um, roles like um, Morgan Freeman and all these different people playing the president in these movies. <laughs> Literally, I mean, you're laughing, but I mean, right. you know, I mean, right, yeah. creating in your mind 24? the image, the possibility right, yeah. of something happening that before right. was, was thought of as, as ludicrous. This mm -hmm. can't happen. Right. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important to, to um, you know, open up the, um, the, 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 the realm of, um, of possibilities by telling stories that just haven't been told before. Trisha Cochet, a former UCLA employee. Go <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bruins. Um, I'm a PR person, marketing. Uh, too often I find black movies are not properly marketed mm. and uh, they are definitely not marketed in black media. So mm. can you speak to the issue of marketing? We had, a, we had a marketing consultant specifically for the black media because we didn't want to, we didn't want to assume our normal sort of uh, publicity plan was going to do it. Uh, and, and so we made an effort to really super serve our audiences because we felt like, well, otherwise they're not going to feel like we're talking to them and we really wanted to talk to them. So it was a big effort. It was something Ryan and I talked a lot about again, even in, in production and Disney picked up the ball and, and did a great job at doing. Um, uh, and it's, again, it, it was always in the service of this movie is for everybody, but man, we really want you guys to find the film. Mm -hmm. uh, again, we have the resources to do it. So it's, it's easier for us than a smaller film who, who I think struggles and I think part of why Tyler Perry is so successful is he understands how to market right. his films mm -hmm. uh, in a way that some other filmmakers or other studios don't necessarily go to those same lengths. So it's really important, for sure. And, and for, for films with smaller uh, marketing budgets, don't overlook the social media. Mm -hmm. Black right. Twitter yeah. is yeah. really, really powerful. Uh, black folks are overrepresented on Twitter as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's because it's like the drum. Yep. We're all scattered, <laughs> and you know, but but we can hear. Oh, there's a rally here. Oh, there's a right. movie there. Right. So that's that's a, a big advantage that that people didn't have not too long ago. And we can you can we can see that in our TV data when we look at you know, uh, Nielsen's Twitter data. Mm -hmm. uh, it's off the 
the charts for right. black viewers mm -hmm. and, and cable for, for those shows. So I mean, uh, what Scandal it's, it's did, understanding you know that there would be a group of women watching Scandal every Thursday, yep. they yep. made it a Twitter event. It right. fundamentally changed how mm -hmm. black folks watch television. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Uh, it's Paul Fontlaurier, okay, Pablo, ex Marvel employee, uh, <laughs> studied cinema at Duke. Uh, <laughs> I've been reading the Black uh, Hollywood Diversity Report from UCLA for at least the last two or three years. It's helped me kind of inform the project that I've been working on. Uh, I just want to say, I want to thank the, the Zocalo for this entire panel. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an amazing group of people, and I think we need to give a shout out. Um, but I especially, 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 it's not really even a question, just a comment. I'm super proud of Nate, because I remember working with him in Marvel, and I'm so glad he stuck it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's a question, though. Do you think that, um, do you think that there are going to be other opportunities within the Hollywood studio system whereby they're not that it, this executive that's a person of color in the room that young filmmakers can make the next generation of these blockbuster films? Look, I think, again, people, are, uh, people on both sides of the desk, right? Executives are also people who want to tell really interesting stories, and I think they're looking for storytellers now who will tell those interesting stories or who know those interesting stories. I think the notion of the buddy cop movie or those things that are very familiar that sort of Hollywood has churned out and churned out is kind of going away, partially because they're not working and partially because things that are different are starting to work more. Mm -hmm. So executives of all stripes, men, women, old, young, white, black, uh, are looking for the things that are going to stand out because they know that all you guys don't really care. You just want a good movie. Um, so I do think that old notion of, well, they're only really going to come if, it, if these people look like this and they're doing this thing, I think that's going away. I think TV's blazed a path because TV is ahead of the curve in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, again, I think it's a trend and I think it's going to come, it's, not, it's never going to come as fast as we want, right? It just yeah, doesn't. Yeah. Uh, making movies doesn't happen that fast. Uh, but it's coming and that's good. I mean, movies like even Annihilation are sort of interesting in that regard. Uh, all female cast, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, uh, two women of color who are leads, you know? Mm. Um, I think that's great. I think, and, and people want to see that. Pacific yeah. Rim, John Boyega, yeah. uh, Gringo, uh, David Oyelowo. These are all movies that are literally out in the last two months. Yeah. So there's a lot of content out there, and I think there's just going to be more. Hi, uh, my name is Gregory Amerson. I'm a former HBO executive. Um, I'm going to date myself a little bit as well. Um, I've kind of been through this cycle where, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but yeah. uh, there have been periods <laughs> in Hollywood yeah. where um, people of color have been excited uh, about projects that have done well commercially, and uh, there's been no follow-up. I'm actually old enough to remember the uh, black exploitation era mm -hmm. in the 1970s, mm -hmm. in which uh, basically black films, which were greenlit and directed and produced by non-people of color, basically saved Hollywood for probably yep. six or seven years when Hollywood was basically going down the tubes. Uh, and after Hollywood kind of got its bearing, um, those actors and actresses and people who worked, few people that worked behind the scenes, could not buy themselves a job. They could not get hired mm -hmm. at all. They basically just disappeared. So my question is, we're all excited about this film. I'm super stoked about it. Um, I also saw a trailer yesterday for a remake of Superfly. 
And I understand the Mac is in development as well. So my question is, where does the quality control come into play here? <laughs> well, to Mark's point, <laughs> to Mark's point, but it's true. Uh, there have to be. We have to be able to make bad movies too, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't, by the way, Superfly might be great. I don't know, yeah. but you, it, yeah, there has to be all. I, that's that's true equality, right? Is it's not just man. All of all of our movies are Black Panther, all the two hundred million dollar big temple action. Like there has to be a, a spectrum in the way yeah. that there's a spectrum for everyone else. It needs that, to be variety. Yeah, yeah. that that history is important to remember. You, you know, you mentioned the black exploitation era. I think about an actor like the late Calvin Lockhart. Mm -hmm. who was an amazing actor who yeah. was never allowed right to sure. to go that next level right he was kind of stuck in these black exploitation films so those histories are important but even as you mentioned superfly i sure enough watched a trailer from mary poppins today when i went to see um wrinkle in time so this kind of nostalgia piece is yeah. across racial but right right absolutely absolutely and and, yeah. and when when people don't have access to people of color in their circle they aren't in the meetings you know they, right. some of those studio executives will jump at some weak sounding projects that you and mm -hmm. I would know. Mm, I don't think so. Yeah. But what's encouraging to me is that it's never been easier to make a film in terms mm. of literally you can shoot a film on your mm -hmm. iPhone. I'm not mm -hmm. saying you can shoot it on your iPhone and get it in multiplexes without a whole lot of hoop jumping. But when you have artivists, uh, activist artists like Ava DuVernay, uh, who started out with very small films mm -hmm. and finances with Array, her company, mm -hmm. that's not going to stop. She has blazed a trail. Uh, Shonda Rhimes has blazed a trail, just like Terry Millen blazed that trail Perfect. that helped pave right. the way for me in publishing. Right. So as long as you have that, that conversation between sort of the, the people who are on the inside and maybe are a little more clueless, and then the people on the outside who are trying to get in, you do get your moonlights. You do get your smaller films, your quality pieces. Um, and yeah, some of them won't be great, but, but some of them, because you had to be so much better to even get to that point, will be fantastic. And I think the other thing, too, to keep in mind is that, you know, during the black exploitation era, we weren't talking about audiences like we see That's today. Right. Right. So the audience fundamentally has shifted to the point where people of color are about 40% of the population, that's only getting larger, and they watch more movies and mm. more television. So if the industry is going to make money, they're going to have to serve the audience at some point. Now, there's going to be a time lag, because you know, they've, they're begrudgingly sort of you know, giving up control you know, in, these, in these executive suites, and, and maybe they think they know better than others in terms of what's going to sell and this, that, and the other. But the reality is the audiences are going to, going to show with, you know, what, they do, what they do at the box office. And if you think about the global market, I mean, guess what? The global market right. looks like America's diversity. That's so, right. you know, in, in every way, you know, at some point, you, you just you can't go back to the 70s. You can't you can't do that. Hello, my name is Tina Wright. I'm a sociologist. I teach at L.A. Southwest College, and I'm also a Bruin group, uh, graduated from UCLA. My question is kind of back to the original question about how it will change uh, Hollywood. And I have kind of a little critique, because when I was watching it, um, the ending kind of was a Hollywood trope, you know, kind of the humanist, and can we all get along? And, and um, also just, I was kind of left with the question, they came to Oakland to kind of set up centers and do that outreach, with, but will they be coming back to Wakanda? And so some of those things I felt like 
uh, needed to be addressed in the movie. And so with that, it made me, oh, and the benevolent white character. Cannot forget the benevolent white character. <laughs> you know, and that he was CIA was very interesting. So I just wanted to know, like, those types of tropes, are we going to be able to get, a, get away from them? And so on, yes. Originally, I had a similar reaction at the end of the movie. But then, you know, I realized that on some level, you, you, you have to have something for everyone in a movie. And I think the overwhelming thrust of the film was about black agency and mm -hmm. was about black um, um, technological prowess. I mean, you know, I mean, to, to see, you know, um, T'Challa's sister, sure, you know, yeah. who mm -hmm. was this, this tech genius, you know, and, and a woman, you know, um, and young, you know. Um, my daughter's in a, an all-girls STEM school, and, and she just loved that role. I mean, so she's thinking, this is what I want to be, you know. And this is the, the power of that type of image that we don't typically see. And so for me, that overrides the benevolent white CIA person and all the other things that probably made the movie a little bit more accessible for other audiences who might not have gotten into it otherwise, you know. So I think, for me at least, on balance, the message is, 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 a, is, a, is a redeeming and positive one. There's always that sneaking suspicion that the wokest Black Panther that could have been made would not have been made. Right. right? That's just the reality <laughs> right. of the marketplace. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean that we weren't dealing with a very talented and skilled director who created a densely layered yes. film um, that's not only just about the general audience. I mean, we've seen the amount of scholarship that's been produced just in response to this film over the last yeah. month, and everything from gender relationships to the absence of religion to questions about design, like literal design questions, like, you know, what's the deal with the little trains running around? Why are there no cars? I mean, all these kinds of things that are there yeah. that we will be talking about in the context of this film really for the next decade, if not beyond. Um, and that's, just, that's credit to Ryan Coogler, right? And, yeah. and the screenwriters trying to create a script that knew that it couldn't go where it needed to go, but there's enough there for people to take what's Absolutely. there and create beyond that. Well, and I would, I would argue it went where it needed to go. I mean, I, I think that ending for us was always about T'Challa learning the lesson from Killmonger. Mm -hmm. right. But employing right. it in a way that was heroic and not That's destructive. Mm -hmm. right. um, so I would argue that is actually completely within the guidelines of what that character was learning in the film. Mm -hmm. Had he gone back and been isolationist again, I would argue the film invalidates the very discussion mm. it was trying to, no, to, mm -hmm. to employ. Mm -hmm. so, so, I, so yeah, I guess I don't agree. Um, uh, <laughs> the, uh, and I will say, the, look, the, benevol the, the benevolent white character is... Uh, is a character from publishing who is not 100% benevolent and I think has his own agenda. I think the notion that you can't have a white character who, who sort of uh, agrees with your position is a weird one because of course, he, like, of course he does, I think, what everyone in the audience, had they been brought into the story in the same way, would have done. So uh, well, The character evolved, too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, that, and that was the intent, yeah. right? It's, it's, um, and he's not just any character, he's a CIA agent. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's what probably and, there, and there's a, you know, a deeper history in terms sure, of you know, sure. disrupting black protest movements sure, and sure. that, that, that raises sure. those kind yeah. of questions, I think, for some folks. It 100% does, but I also don't, uh, I would not make a blanket statement about anybody. Yeah. I wouldn't say because he's CIA, he cannot be benevolent. Uh, I think that's the mistake. I think that's a mistake in storytelling in general. It's a mistake that has affected us <laughs> the most as African-American people of the blanket statement of, well, there's the criminal, he's black. How mm -hmm. do you, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. as storytellers, we have to be responsible with every decision we make across the board. And I think to your, it does make it accessible if you show people who are across the spectrum and have varied ideas about anything. 
what I think you cannot do is demonize anyone for any specific reason that is other than what their character would do, because then mm -hmm. you get into the problem of mm -hmm. well, all of the all of the black people in the film are criminals. Yeah, and, I, and I think oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think the film is dealing with those complexities. I mean, I, I like you know, for example, the the, the scene where is that you cannot speak here. You know, right. I mean, right. I mean right. there are moments in the film <laughs> where the, the film is clearly <laughs> conscious of these of right. these debates and, and the tensions, right? Right. But but it handles it, I think, in a responsible way that yeah. allows. You know the you know various you know subject positions within the audience to kind of engage right. with the film at, at important points without losing again for me the big takeaway the agency of black people yes. which is right. what we don't normally see and yeah. Killmonger's death I thought you know yeah. he chose his own death he didn't want to yeah. be behind bars and yeah. that was really well, well we presume his death right <laughs> right. right okay <laughs> all right uh, thank you my name is Reginald Nelson and uh, first I'm just a, you know I'm a a comic book nerd, as you probably can see. So, uh, Nate, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. And, uh, I mean, I, I was just blown away by the film, and uh, and also, Nate, you you produced two of my all-time favorite uh, films, just period. And that's the Winter Soldier and Black Panther. Now, so I want to give you big props for that. And also, um, I just want to address, as far as the ending, uh, the, I was moved by the ending because uh, uh, I'm from Chicago, and about I'm 45 years old. And I remember, yeah, Chi-Town. And <laughs> I remember as a kid, uh, I had to be about nine years old. I, I grew, I was, I'm from the projects in Chicago. And I remember seeing a Cadillac, a green Cadillac of uh, Bishop Don Juan uh, drive through the neighborhood. And I remember as little boys running towards that car and asking him, uh, who are you? Well, you know, what do you do? Now, to his credit, he didn't tell us he was a pimp. You know, I'll, give, I'll give him props for that. You know, okay. He said he was the king of Wakanda. But he just said he said he, he said he was Magic Johnson's brother. So that so that ending resonated for yeah. me at the end. Yeah. To tell us standing there in the projects and to the kids. So I I, I want to say the ending really really moved me in a, in, a, in a deep way. But my question is again to Nate is uh, for the sequel. Mm -hmm. Are we going to see uh, T'Challa's full fighting ability on, on display? Because like, <laughs> that's one of the things I love about the Winter Soldiers, that you saw Chris Evans and Sebastian Stan fighting in the, you know, in the street. Yep. But I saw behind the scenes of Chadwick fighting, doing this kick-ass battle uh, in the casino. You know, in the scene where he's doing, he's sliding on the boom, boom, boom. <laughs> But it didn't make it into the final cut. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Chad is is super talented. So he did. Uh, I would argue the bulk of all of his stunts, including the fighting, because he he trains in martial arts, irregardless of what he's doing in film. Um, so of course we want to see that more in a sequel, uh, uh, as long as it fits with the sequel stories, which we don't know yet. But yes, uh, in the same way that Chris and Sebastian did. All, uh, of course, Chad can do almost anything physical. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good evening. Uh, my name is Amani Shoyinka. I am African and African American. I have a question uh, regarding the cultures. Um, would you consider today this movie to be an African movie or an mm. African American movie? I saw it here on Thursday night, and I embraced it as an African American uh, queer woman. And I happened to be in West Africa on Friday mm. um, to see the reception of the movie. Um, so I kind of. Uh, wondering what your thoughts are as the movie was being made, mm. and um, and how you feel about how African cultures might receive this movie as maybe appropriation of some of their culture, mm. um, and uh, to sorry I wrote it down, 
uh, to Tenerife. Did I say right? I'm sorry. Tenerife. Tenerife. How do we continue to tell the stories of African cultures and African American cultures without one feeling like you know we're being our you know our stories are being uh, capitalized on uh, without anything being given back to these African cultures? Mm. Mm. I, the goal was that it would be both, that it would be a, uh, an African and African-American movie. Uh, it was very much, and Ryan's intent was always that the film would be a love letter to Africa um, because it was a place he wanted to discover himself. You know, he had never been to Africa before we hired him and that was the first thing he asked to do was, can I go to Africa? Because I probably should have set foot in it and talk to the people of the continent I'm about to make a movie about. Um, Where did he go? Uh, he went to, I believe, to Kenya, to Ghana, and to South Africa because he had friends mm. in each place that he could stay with. Because what he didn't want to do was do the tourist version, right? right. To do like the, the back of the bus version of Africa. He wanted to talk to people who actually lived there. Um, and uh, uh, so the, the goal for us was that everything in the film was steeped in something that was real to the continent of Africa. And that went through production design and costumes, um, uh, weaponry, props. Uh, and was a big undertaking uh, with the hopes of that people in Africa could appreciate and see themselves also reflected in the film. Um, I don't know that we got everything right. We had, we had consultants uh, from South Africa who did a lot of our cultural stuff because Wakandan culture is based somewhat on Kosa culture, which is South African. Um, we had a 500-page Wakandan Bible that we gave to every crew member that showed them exactly where the references were that we were pulling from so there would be consistency because one of the things that... Uh, you know, these crews on these films are, are big, sometimes 500 plus people. Uh, so if you have somebody who is not aware of what the initial goal was, sometimes you get mission creep and they start doing something different. Um, so in the pre-production period, we spent a ton of time with, uh, with sociologists, with uh, architects who knew about Africa or were from Africa to tell us what would be appropriate and what wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that we got everything right. I'm, I'm not from Africa. I can say anecdotally from Friends, uh, our, our editor was from South Africa. Um, again, John Connie, who is South African, and his son, Atanvo, served as consultants. Uh, and in the screenings that I've heard about from South Africa specifically, which is not the entire continent, clearly, people really loved that it was a celebration of Africa. But Africa is also a continent, mm -hmm. and, and we're a film about a fictional country in the middle of it. <laughs> so uh, do I think all of it was 100% right? No. Um, do I think African people appreciated the attempt? At authenticity? I think so. Um, uh, I think so. Yeah, um, my, my name, Tanana Reeve, is from Madagascar, but mm. I myself am African-American. So I think because I had that name, I've been drawn to telling African stories. I studied Nigerian literature in grad school. I have a, a series about, uh, a book series about Ethiopian immortals. But I, in years since I wrote that, and it's been a while, I've been mindful of the idea, you know, I'm not Ethiopian, is that my story? Mm -hmm. and, but I do truly believe that all artists must feel free to tell every story, but to tell those stories responsibly. Mm -hmm. So for writers, you have those sensitivity readers and, and listen to what they have to say. Uh, I tried to lift up a, a little known battle from Ethiopia, the Battle of Adwa, where Ethiopians beat the Italians, okay? And so few of us know about that story, but at the same time, I think the solution is also to lift up 
mm. artists who are from, you know, okay. Africa right. at the same time. So yeah, I'm not Nnedi Okorafor, you know, who's Nigerian. Uh, and, and I'm not um, like a filmmaker like Wanuri Kahi, who's from Kenya, but I will lift up those, those artists' names. And I also try my best when I am depicting characters from Africa to, to, to represent them uh, in a way that they would appreciate and might inspire young writers to, to say, oh, that's me, I can do this. Mm. Well, that's all the time that we have for tonight's program, up here on stage, at least. But before we do close, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to UCLA, our co-presenter this evening, for making this fantastic program possible. I'd also like to thank all of you for joining us, for coming out to Hollywood tonight. And please stick around for the post-event reception, which is just outside. Take a right as soon as you get out of the theater. Down the hall, we'll have ushers leading you in the right direction for free drinks right afterwards with our featured guests tonight. Um, and finally, a big round of applause for our panelists this evening. Thank you so much.